Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to John and the 19th chapter of John. As we continue our study in John that we started some time ago, we are all the way to chapter 19 where we will begin today in this third installment of a mini-series inside of the book of John that we have dubbed entitled The Arrest of Jesus. This is part three where we have been talking about the arrests and the mock trials and the sentencing and the sentencing of Christ upon the cross, his crucifixion. And we have covered a lot in these last few weeks in looking at this, many details that I told you. Oftentimes we read through it and we miss them. Uh, We go right over them, but every little minute detail is there for a specific purpose and reason. We are doing our due diligence, at least I hope, to uncover those things so that we can teach them, so that we can grow in Christ. And last week we saw, as we looked at the second part of this, we saw personalities that were involved in the arrest and conviction of Jesus. We saw the week before that the different elements of his trials. We saw that he had three religious trials and three Roman trials and the purpose of that. And we saw, as we looked last week at these different personalities, how these wicked men with wicked motives and wicked intent uh, sought to scheme a wicked evil plan, and that wicked and evil plan was to murder Christ. But I want you to see today as we open this text up, I want you to see that there are parallel truths that exist all at the same time. Though these wicked and evil men did accomplish the plan of sending Jesus to the cross, I want you to see that there is another truth that runs parallel alongside of that that you cannot deny, and that's what we're going to focus on today. And let me just go ahead and tell you this. This is not shallow, kiddie pool type stuff. Um, I'm going to ask that each of you remove your floaties at this moment in time, and we're going to wade off into the deep end. And, And many people are intimidated by the deep end because God increases and man has to decrease when we begin to look at things such as the sovereignty of God. And in this instance, the sovereignty of God in reference to the crucifixion of Christ. Because that is that parallel truth that though... There were wicked men involved in the death and the sentencing and the mock trials of Christ. All the while, in fact, even before any of those men were ever born, there is the sovereign hand of God who orchestrated everything involved in the brutal execution of Christ. He orchestrated it according to His sovereign plan and will. Albeit that all of the Jewish leaders, albeit that Pilate and Herod and all of the wicked and evil men involved in this will be responsible for their actions. But that does not negate nor does it erase the fact that God sovereignly allowed or caused every single element of the crucifixion of Christ to happen exactly and accordingly to His perfect plan. So what am I saying there? I'm saying this. He used the hypocrisy of the hypocrite. 
We saw last week the hypocrite. God uses the hypocrisy of the hypocrite. We're going to see how. Not only did he use the hypocrisy of the hypocrite, he used the compromise of the compromisers that we saw last week. We saw Pilate continually compromising with the Jews. He's going to use the compromise of the compromiser. He doesn't have to make the compromiser a compromiser. A lost person is always a compromiser. He doesn't have to make a hypocrite a hypocrite. A lost person always has the capability of being a hypocrite. And then last week we saw that group of people that we refer to as the haters. God is going to use the hate of the haters to accomplish his plan and to sentence his only begotten son to death and death on the cross where he purchased sinners according to the set plan and purpose of God. I told you this is deep water stuff. God was not in panic mode. Many people have that idea. And God was sitting helplessly up in, in, in heaven on his throne and he was shocked that they would do such wicked and evil things to the only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not shocked at all. Everything, every element from the number of thorns that were on the crown that was pressed into the brow of Christ, everything was according to the sovereign will and plan of God. We're going to see why that is important in just a moment. But I want us to make no mistake. Every bit of what we have seen, every bit of what we will see, is God's perfect will and purpose being fulfilled. He never needs a plan B, as many people think. Oh, they killed my son. Now I have to raise him from the dead. <laughs> it was all plan A. God only works in plan A. Never does he need a plan B because he is that big. Why do we talk about the sovereignty of God? We talk about the sovereignty of God because it's a forgotten aspect of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's a forgotten aspect in Christianity. I can take you all the way back to Genesis 1-1 and we see the sovereign existence of God. In the beginning, God. That's how it all starts. Don't forget that. And that's how it's all going to end as we bow before our sovereign God for all eternity and we worship and dwell with Him because He has redeemed us in Christ according to His sovereign plan. So God was not in a panic mode here going, okay, plan A failed. What do we have to do now? We're going to see that every single element of this was according to God's plan. Before we go into John's gospel in chapter 19, I'm going to ask you just to hold your hand there and I want you to flip to the right to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, this is Peter just a short moment after receiving the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enlightened him to some things that began to make sense because Christ had obviously taught him these things. So Peter, on his first ever sermon, after being empowered by the Holy Spirit, preaches on the sovereignty of God and the crucifixion of Christ. And I don't want you to miss that. I want you to see the importance of that here today. Because if we see that God sovereignly orchestrated it, God gets all the credit for it. Man gets none. Not good man or evil man, though there are no good men. No one gets credit for it but God. Verse 22 of chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. He said he did all these things before you. He's talking to the same Jewish mob who is going to, in a moment in John's 19th chapter, scream, crucify him, crucify him. He says, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know. He says, you know, you saw it. You saw the invalid healed. You saw the blind receive their sight. 
You, you saw the water turned into wine. You saw all of these things. Watch what he says in verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. That term set purpose, I want you to understand what that word set means. It is a Greek word, horizo. And that Greek word means this, God's predetermined plan. Plan A. The only plan God has. Plan A. He is not like us. His ways are higher than ours. We need plan B and usually plan C and sometimes plan D, all the way to Z most of the time in my life. God has one plan. He says, according to your set purpose, God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, talking to the Jewish leaders, with the help of wicked men, talking about the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see there the sovereignty of God in the crucifixion of Christ and the responsibility of the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials who sentenced Christ to death running parallel as true. He goes on and he says, but God raised him from the dead. Oh, he wins, doesn't he? Aren't you glad that he always wins? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. We look at that verse for a reason in light of John chapter 19, where we will spend our time today in verses 1 through 16. And so let's jump right in there and let's read this and let's teach from it and break it down verse by verse as we always do. <coughs> verse 1 of chapter 19. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Some of your Bibles say scourged. The same thing. We will be talking in detail about that in a moment. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. That's the second time we saw in 18. Pilate couldn't find anything to accuse Jesus of. There's the second time. There will be a third time. Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. There's Pilate again, the third time, saying, I find no basis. He's done nothing wrong. Of course, he didn't find anything wrong in Christ. Verse 7, the Jews insisted, we have a law. And according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now, when Pilate heard this, this struck a nerve with him because he was brought up under Roman influence. He was a Roman. He was brought up with all of the many false deities of Rome. And many of those false deities claimed to be sons of God. They would come to this earth as human or in human form, and supposedly these deities, whichever one, one it was that he was thinking of, would take on flesh and actually walk among the humans. And so when they used that term, son of God, it bothered him. Now understand this. This is on top of his wife already having a dream that said, don't harm him. Now they tell him he claims to be deity. And Pilate says, i got to check this out because what if he is? Because in my culture I've heard of these who walk the earth who are actually deity though we know them to be false deity. So he brings Jesus back in. Verse 8 says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. 
But Jesus gave him no answer. I love that. Jesus doesn't have to give you an answer if he doesn't want to give you an answer. He gave no answer. Pilate then tries to flex on Jesus. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a freebie this morning. Don't try to flex on Jesus. It's not going to work out for you. Many, many of you can testify. You know how I know that? Because I'm the dumb one who has tried before. To tell him my plans and to think that he has to bow down to my plans and my will. It doesn't work like that. Verse 10 says, Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? What a convicting statement against Pilate. He admits right there that he has the power, he thinks, to free him or to crucify him. Now watch, Jesus has been silent up until this point, but watch his response. Jesus answered, verse 11, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pay attention to that. That's the focal point of today's message. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. What is Jesus talking about there? Many scholars would say that he would perhaps be referencing Judas. But we know that Judas did not hand Christ over to Pilate. It was actually Caiaphas who handed Christ over to Pilate. And so Jesus is letting Pilate know, Pilate, in your ignorance, you're still doing wrong. But it's not near to the degree of wickedness that Caiaphas and the rest of the others who handed me over to you have done. They've seen my miracles. They know the Old Testament Scripture. They have received greater light. You're in ignorance, and yes, that's a fact. But a greater sin is what is committed by those who handed you over to me, handed me over to you. He goes on to say in verse 12, From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, wait a second. The Jews are, are really taking a turn here. There's nothing more in all of the earth in these days that the Jews hated more than the tyranny of Rome and the Roman authorities. Now, watch what they do here. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Pilate then presents Jesus. He says, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? Watch what they say. We have no king but Caesar. The only thing that the Jews hated more than the Romans in this instance is Christ himself. They showed their allegiance to Caesar while they're screaming for the murder of Christ. Finally, it says in verse 16, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. I want you to see these elements in this text today that are very important in regard to God's sovereignty on display. And how did God display his sovereignty here? We have seen all of the human elements and all the human personalities who will be held responsible for what they did. But I want us to also see the depths of the truth of this, that without it being God's sovereign will and plan, his set purpose, none of this 
would have been accomplished. You would still be lost in your sin. I would still be lost in my sin. There would be no hope of forgiveness and eternal life for anyone had Jesus Christ not went to the cross where he was brutally crucified for all who will believe and trust in him. And so we're going to see God's sovereignty on display. First, we see God's sovereignty displayed in Christ's humility. In Christ's humility, verses 1 through 6 point this out to us very clearly. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged or scourged, as I said, some of your manuscripts say. And it says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more, it says that Pilate came out, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the, the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. And Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Now, at that moment in time, we all wonder this. Why did Jesus not scream out, Yes! Just as he says, I am innocent of everything. Was he not innocent of everything? Yes, Pilate hit the nail on the head. He's done no wrong. Why was Christ not screaming at the top of his lungs? Let me go. I've done nothing wrong. Because Christ understood that it was God the Father's will that he humble himself according to God's sovereign decision. We see the sovereignty of God displayed in the humility of Christ, first in his scourging. First in his scourging. Let's talk about that scourging for just a minute, or that flogging. What they would do is the Romans would take this individual who was convicted of a crime. They would strip him or her of all of their clothes. They would fasten them to a pole that was driven into the ground. And it's there that they would beat them, as we see, and mock them and ridicule them. But that was just the beginning. You can go, if you ever have an opportunity, to go to the Holy Land, to Israel. You can go to the place where they believe that Jesus would have been scourged. And on those big rock stones, that pavement that those Romans had made, Engraved in those stones were games that they used to play with the lives of those that they were scourging. Tic-tac-toe type games, right? Roll the dice and wherever it lands, that's what happens to the victim next. And so Jesus would then receive a lashing from what is known as the cat of nine tails. History says that there were nine leather straps fastened to a wooden handle. Whether it was nine or whether it was eight, it really doesn't matter. From the end of those leather straps were fastened rock and glass, metal, or anything that they could find, any sharp object that they could find to rip flesh from a person's body. And they would then take that cat of nine tails, that scourging whip, and they would lash that person's back as they were tied with their back facing out on that post. And in doing that, they would rip their flesh from their body, removing the skin first, and then the muscle and the sinew. Eventually, history says this, that it would expose their kidneys and expose their lungs through their ribcage. It was a brutal, 
brutal form of torture. Yet Jesus humbly goes to this place of brutal torture. Why? Why was he not saying, let me go. I've done nothing wrong. Because the sovereign plan of God was understood. It was understood that he would receive this scourging and he was to remain humble as it took place. In fact, Isaiah speaks of this hundreds of years before Christ, the scourging of Christ. In Isaiah 50, verse 6, it says this, I offered my back to those who beat me. Oh, he offered it to them. I told you it's God's sovereign plan. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. We're going to learn in a moment. They spit in his face. The king of glory, yet he said nothing to them. Verse 7, it says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Oh, his hope was in the sovereignty of God. A topic that when we talk about it, people get uncomfortable. They get antsy in their seat. Well, there's great comfort in the sovereignty of God. Christ received that comfort. He says, because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I've humbled myself with no expression. And I know I will not be put to shame. Oh, his confidence was not in the fact that he was being flogged and beaten. His confidence was in the sovereign plan of God that promised that he would be victorious over everything that he faced. I want you to see this today. In his scourging, it was God's sovereign will that Christ would be humbled to a point where he was flogged and beaten for you and for me. Isaiah 52, verse 13 it describes for us what Isaiah calls the suffering servant. Again, hundreds of years before Christ, Isaiah describes the suffering servant. You, you decide who you think the suffering servant might be. Verse 13, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. How is his form marred? And, and how was his face and his appearance disfigured? Because they literally punched him in his face, and they literally ripped flesh from his back, and they literally took a stick or a scepter mocking him and hitting him across the brow with it over and over and over again, all according to the sovereign plan of God. God allowed every aspect of it to happen. The father was not gasping for air when this was going on. He was rejoicing because the redemption of man was being fulfilled. His perfect plan. Before Christ was ever on this earth. I want you to see this. Before he was ever incarnated at the virgin birth, it was proclaimed that the Messiah would be a humble, suffering servant in accordance with God's perfect plan. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. To crush who? To crush the suffering servant. It was the will of God that Jesus be crushed. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. 
our justification and forgiveness of sin hinged upon Christ fulfilling the sovereign plan of God through His humility at His scourging. Mark chapter 9, verse 12, the Lord Himself says this. He says, it is written. Oh, when the Lord says it is written, pay attention to that. He means the Old Testament Scriptures confirm this, that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered much for those who will believe and trust in Him by faith. We see Christ displaying God's sovereign power through His humility and His scourging. But secondly, we see this also in His substitution. Pay attention to the text here. In His substitution, we see that He is a willing substitute. John 10, verses 17 and 18, when we were there, if you will remember back with me, we learned this. Jesus made it very clear in verse 17. He said, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus was walking in humble obedience to the Father when He became our substitutionary atonement. We see this in His substitution, that He was a willing substitute. Pay attention to the verses there. What happened to Jesus? Well, he was arrested and He was scorned and mocked and ridiculed. Watch this. In exchange for my freedom. In exchange for your freedom if you were in Christ. He was mocked and arrested and ridiculed, bound and scourged so that we could go free. All according to the sovereign plan of God. The Old Testament Scriptures testify to that. Not only was He arrested and scorned for our freedom, He was crowned with thorns. Oh, think about that for a second. We can go all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned and, and the curse of sin fell upon mankind. What was a sign of the curse? Thorns and thistles. And those thorns and thistles would make your life miserable because all the days you will work and sweat from your brow until you return back to the earth because that is the curse of sin. And there at Jerusalem on this day, Christ Jesus, according to the sovereign plan of God, bore the curse of the thorns upon his head. But watch this. That I might receive the Stephanos crown of victory that he gives to all of those who by faith in Christ are saved. Well, what a substitute here. He took the thorns and I get the victor's crown. We see His humility in His substitution here, displaying God's sovereign work. We also see this as we read, He was clothed in a royal robe of some sort. Though many debate and ponder what exactly it was, it really doesn't matter. It was meant to mock Him. He wore that robe of shame that we might wear robes of righteousness. I want you to think about that for a second because in that we see the hum humble substitutionary atonement and work of Christ. He took 
our place. It was our scourging. It was our shame. It was our crown of thorns. It was our robe of shame. And he exchanged it all for glory that is found only through him. All according to God's sovereign plan. Never once did Jesus complain about the injustice that he was enduring. Well, can you imagine if any of us had to go through with this? And we would be whining and complaining about the injustice, but it was the Father's will that he remain humble. That he humble himself to death, even death on the cross, according to what Philippians 2 tells us. And here he is, not saying a word, but enduring the will of God as a willing substitute. Not only was he a willing substitute in reference to his substitution, he was a worthy substitute. Oh, don't miss this. Pilate in those verses 1 through 6 declares the second and the third time that there was no fault in Christ. Pilate was absolutely right. The reason that he found no fault is because there was no fault to be found. We know that 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us this about Christ. It says in verse 18, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. It was God's sovereign plan that Christ, a lamb without spot, without blemish, be presented as a worthy substitute for wicked sinners like Kirk Hall. And Christ here is obediently fulfilling that in his substitution displaying God's sovereign hand at work through his crucifixion, not only in his substitution, but also in his shame. Look at the shame that Christ endured. Matthew chapter 27, Matthew gives another angle on this. When you're reading the Gospels, read the Gospels. In all the accounts in the Gospel, you'll gather details, and all those details are important. Matthew says this about Christ in the same situation in chapter 27, verse 27. He says, then the governor's Soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. It was in that moment that we see happened there in verse 16 of 19. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Matthew's account giving us a glimpse from a different angle where they beat and they ridiculed and they mocked him. He allowed them to spit in his face for you and for me. Oh, can you think of anything more disgusting in all the world? I can't. There's nothing more disgusting in all the world than if someone would come and spit in your face. Yet Christ humbly endured that shame. Spitting in his face, striking him on the face and on his head over and over again with their fist, with a wooden staff, according to Mark chapter 15, that they had made just for this. He was mocked and he was ridiculed and he was despised. 
But I want you to see this. God sovereignly accomplished what was prophesied in and through his word, what was predetermined by his will. He displayed this through Christ's humility as he obeyed the Father in this moment perfectly. I want you to think for me for a second. Think for me, to think with me. Had Christ not humbly submitted to the will of the Father, there would not have been an atoning substitutionary sacrifice for any of us. We would still be under the condemnation of sin. We would still bear our own shame. We would still be clothed in robes of unrighteousness, wearing a crown of thorns upon our head under the curse of sin and death. God's sovereignty was displayed in Christ's humility, verses 1 through 6. We move on to the next point, and that's God's sovereignty displayed in Pilate's inability. Watch what happens here. Verses 7 through 13 describe for us Pilate's inability. The Jews insisted we have a law, and according to the law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Pilate's afraid here. He wants to let Jesus free. He wants to turn him loose. And he went back inside the palace. Where, where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, it says, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and set him on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. We see here that Pilate knew that he needed to let Jesus go, but he was unable to do so. He was unable to do so because it was the sovereign plan of God that Christ be crucified. Without Pilate even knowing this, just as without Pharaoh even knowing this, God raised him up so that God could show his power through him. God kept Pilate from doing the right thing. You say, well, how could he? I don't know. You're going to have to take that up with him. He's in control. But he kept Pilate from doing the right thing. How does he do that? It's not like God makes Pilate do bad things. Unredeemed people do bad things on their own. Pilate, in his sin, was unable to stand against the Jewish leaders, though he knew it was the right thing to do. Did you know this? The believer, or the unbeliever, excuse me, can know the right thing to do, but they are unable to do it. They cannot do the right thing. He was unable to stand against the Jewish leaders, though he knew that to be right. And he had all kind of earthly authority, didn't he? He already told him, I've got the authority. But it didn't count for much in comparison to the unseen sovereign hand of Almighty God. There was nothing that Pilate could do to change God's mind and to alter God's plan. He was unable to stand against the Jewish leaders who wanted to convict and to crucify Christ. With all the power that Rome had given Pilate, he stood powerless before the almighty hand of God. Jesus let him know that. He let him know that loudly and clearly, that you're unable 
to do anything. Because that's what sinful man is. He is unable to do anything right. All God had to do, all he had to do in this situation was make it happen. But he would have had to alter his own plan that was devised in his wise counsel in eternity past. He was not and will not ever do that for anyone or anything. Pilate was unable to stand against the Jewish leaders. Pilate was not only unable to stand against them, he was unable to see Jesus for who he really is. I'll write this down. When a person is unwilling or unable to see who Jesus is, you have to come to the conclusion that God has not revealed Jesus to them. You say, well, what do you mean, pastor? It's exactly what I mean. It's exactly what Scripture says. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, if you'll go back with me to Peter's confession of Christ, Simon Peter answered, verse 16 of Matthew 16. He answered, he answered a question, and that question was this. Many people were saying many things about Christ, and Jesus plainly asked Peter, okay, they're saying that, that's their opinion about who they think I am, but Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is his profession of Christ. Now watch this. For those of you who think you did that on your own, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Why could Pilate not see who Jesus really was? Because God would not allow that to be revealed to him. Because Christ had to suffer and Christ had to die according to the sovereign plan of God. Stop being upset when we talk about the sovereignty of God and that he chooses things that are beyond us. Stop being upset about that. Had he not, had he not kept Pilate from seeing the truth, Pilate would have set Jesus free and where would you all be for eternity? tell you where I would be. I'd be under the wrath of God in hell because were it not for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his atoning work, I would have no hope of forgiveness and eternal life. He was unable to stand against the Jewish leaders and unable to see who Jesus really was. In our inability, I want you to pay attention to this, in our inability as humans, as sinners, we do not have the capacity to see Jesus for who he really is, to see the things of God. Well, this ideology in the world that we're all just children of God looking for him in our own way. No, you are not. You're children of Adam steeped in your sin. You're not looking for God at all. You want scriptural proof for that? There is none righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after him. Stop deceiving yourself. If you were saved, it's because a sovereign God sought you just as he did Peter and revealed himself to you. Stop thinking that you have to apologize for God in reference to these things. When we look at the sovereignty of God, doesn't he grow and become magnified and we become less? Isn't that clearly what the will of God is, that we should decrease so that he can increase? Pilate was unable to see who Jesus is. How many times have you thought about that from the human perspective? Well, why didn't Pilate just do the right thing? He had free will. No, he didn't. He had captured will. 
His will had been captured by sin since the day that he was born, and unless he is redeemed in Christ, he is enslaved to sin, just like every one of us. He couldn't have made the right choice. He was unable to see who Jesus really is. He was unable to set Jesus free and to do what is right. Setting Jesus free would have thwarted the foreordained plan of God. I want you to see that for a second. Had Pilate set him free, Pilate would then have been able to thwart the plans of a sovereign God that hundreds of years prior to this were proclaimed through the prophets that it was going to happen just like this. Pilate was powerless as Jesus reminded him in comparison to God, unable to set Jesus free and to do the right thing, even if in his depraved mind he thought that he ought to do those things. Why? Because it was the foreordained plan of God. God would have never allowed this to happen. Why? Because we learned, as we read in our Scripture verse, to begin the service in Job chapter 42, God's will is never thwarted. Job 42, 1 through 6. Let me just give you a little preface to this. Job began to question and to wonder and had no right to do so. God came to Job and he spoke to Job and he let him know very quickly, Job, did you raise the mountains up? Did you put the stars in the sky? Did you put the sun where it rests? Did you put the moon where it rests? Did you say to the oceans, you can no longer come any further than this? This is where you stop. Did you do any of that, Job? Do you tell the tides when to come in and when to come out? Do you tell the sun when to rise and when to set? No, Job, you do none of those things. Stop trying to stand in place of me. I am sovereign. You are subject. Watch what happens to Job there. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. Yes, he can. Watch this. No plan of yours can be thwarted. That includes the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It can't be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Watch what Job says. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job said, you called for me to answer you, and I got no answers. Because you're a sovereign, and I'm nothing. Oh, the comfort that comes from that. Oh, could I plead with you for a moment, dear Christian, the comfort that comes with just resting in the sovereignty of God. God, you are in control of everything, and I am in control of nothing. And even when I think I am in control, if I am in control in my flesh, I am out of control. Thank you, Lord. Job says this. Watch what he says. He says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I'm so thankful here that Job didn't get Pentecostal and say, oh, and I am blessed and highly favored. Oh, hallelujah. Shake a tambourine. Wave a flag. No, watch, watch his response to the sovereignty of God. That's what he's talking about here. Watch his response to the sovereignty of God. And couldn't this, shouldn't this be our response to the sovereignty of God? He says, therefore, I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Oh, what happened? Oh, when God brought the doctrine of sovereignty to the attention of Job. Job fell on his face and said, I'm a sinner and you are holy and you are sovereign and you are above all. I am nothing. Who am I to even start to question you? We'll see his sovereignty here. God's sovereignty displayed 
in this account here in the arrest and the trials of Jesus as he stands before Pilate and his accusers, we see man's inability. His inability to make the right decision. His inability to thwart the will of God. Well, let that be a lesson for all of you. Stop praying as if you're trying to change God's mind about something. If God has said no, it's no. And begin to pray like the Scriptures say. You know how the Scripture says to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my, as many of you want to insert in there. Thy will be done. Your will over my will. Why is that so important? Because your will, just as Pilate's will, can't do the right thing. It is God's will being done in us and through us. We see it happen here. Make no mistake. I know the question is going to come. Will Pilate still be held responsible? Yes, Pilate was still culpable here. Just as all sinners are culpable, he will be held responsible for his actions. Just as the religious leaders of the Jews will be held responsible for their actions, even to a higher degree, as verse 11 told us. And just for free, there are higher degrees of hell, in case you were wondering. We're incapable and unable to change or alter or manipulate God's perfect will. You say, well, what if, what if God's perfect will leads me to suffer? Be thankful that you're walking the footsteps of Christ for the glory of God. Because it is in His suffering that He receives glory. And Scripture tells us this, that our sufferings in this world are light and momentary compared to the glory that will be revealed in us for all eternity. We see God's sovereignty displayed in Pilate's inability. And number three, and finally, I told you this wasn't the kiddie pool. If this is too much for you, there's a children's lesson going on upstairs. You're more than welcome to join them. But they don't question the sovereignty of God. They know how big their God is. It's only when we grow up that we begin to question how big God is because we think that we have become so much bigger. May your pride be broken this morning. And may you be humbled and brought to your face in reverence for who He is. We see God's sovereignty displayed in the Jews' reje rejection. The Jews reject Christ here. You say, well, how can that display God's sovereignty? It confirms to us that they had not been regenerated as Jesus explained in John chapter 3, what we know to be called born again. Those who are born again will believe who Christ is. They will repent of their sin. They will repent of their unbelief. They will embrace Christ as Lord and Savior. These Jews, however, as a whole, their lives were void of any kind of evidence that points us to believing that they had undergone the new birth. That means this. God had not sovereignly opened their spiritually blind eyes to see, nor had He quickened their dead souls to life. You say, does God have to do that? Yes, Ephesians chapter 2, read it again. Verse 4, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The new birth and faith in Christ, those are gifts from God's grace. 
You are dead in your sin and dead in your transgression. You are blind to spiritual things. And it's not until God opens your eyes that you can see. And their reaction to Jesus confirmed that they had been left in their unbelief. Why? Because it was according to God's sovereign plan that these Jewish leaders be left in their unbelief so that they could shout, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, and they would sentence Jesus to death. Why is that important for us? If you're in Christ, that is quintessential to your faith. Had they not rejected Christ, we would not have an opportunity to be saved. But yet they did reject him, confirming that they had been left by a sovereign God in their unbelief. Because man cannot believe on their own accord. Some of you may be thinking, I just woke up one day and decided to believe. No, you did not. That's contrary to Scripture. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. How many? None. There are no exceptions. How do we know that he didn't draw these people? They were rejecting Christ, doing exactly what sinners do. How many of you would agree? Before Christ sovereignly saved me, I rejected him at every turn. I could hear the gospel and walk away and not believe and live a life however I wanted to live it, do what I wanted to do. It took a sovereign interruption in your life. Their reaction confirms that they had not been sovereignly regenerated. God left them in the state that they were in, and that was a state of rejection. The same state that I was in before God graciously saved me. A state of rejection. I'm so thankful that while I was in that state of rejection, God had a different plan. He quickened my dead heart, and quickened my dead eyes so that I could see and so that I could believe in Christ and be saved. They confirmed that they had been left in that unbelief. Man can't believe on their own. Stop thinking that. It is a monergistic act of God. It is a monergistic act of God. It is God rescuing you. Stop saying stupid things like this. God throws you the the, the little life ring, the little flotation rescue device on the side of the pool, and all you got to do is swim over there and grab it, and he'll pull you in. That is a lie hat straight out of hell. That is synergism. That is you helping God save you. That is not biblical. Stop using those poor analogies. That's not what happened. You were drowning dead in your sins, sunk to the bottom of the pool, lungs filled with water, dead. And Jesus Christ swam down, rescued you, brought you to the surface, breathed life into you, and now you are alive and you believe that he is the Savior. Why? Because he saved you. Stop being afraid of the sovereignty of God and salvation and embrace it because it is he that is mighty to save. It's not you who's mighty to receive. Salvation is of the Lord. It is a monergistic work. And obviously it hadn't happened in the lives of these Jewish leaders because they didn't believe. Constantly rejecting Christ. Watch this. This is going to bother some of you. According to the plan of God. I got quiet. 
Do you mean to tell me, Kirk, that God left these Jews in their rebellion and rejection of Christ and in their sin by his power? Absolutely, positively. He left them right there so that they would reject Christ and so that you could be saved this very day. Aren't you thankful for the sovereign plan of God? Oh, it's different when we put it like that, isn't it? All the people who want to deny the sovereignty of God and salvation, well, I want to do my part. You don't have a part. The only part you had was to sin at will. It is Christ who saves you from your sin monogistically by his work, through his action, through his power. These men confirmed that they were left in their unbelief many ways, but one of those that's obvious in verse 15, they profess loyalty to a worldly ruler. Right, while rejecting the Messiah that they claim to be waiting for, that they claim to have studied about. And here he is right before them, and they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, proving God's sovereign hand at work. They had all the scripture. They had all the knowledge. If it was up to them, they would have recognized him for sure. But it wasn't up to them. It's up to God to reveal himself to you. I would that you hear that today. I would that he would reveal himself to some of you mightily today. I'm not talking about this, this fairy tale idea of asking Jesus into your heart. You'll find that nowhere in the pages of Scripture. I'm saying in my prayers that a sovereign God would interrupt your dead, sinful life today and breathe life into you that you will see who Jesus really is, no longer rejecting him. These Jewish leaders under the sovereign command and will of God, continued to reject him, confirming that they had not been regenerated or born again, confirming that they had not left their life of unbelief, confirming that Jesus' words were sovereign and true. Watch how they proved Jesus right. How many of you still believe that? When Jesus speaks, he speaks truth. I want to know why our culture is always arguing with Jesus. Who do you think you are? He speaks truth, you speak lies. Just get that, write it down. Quote me on it. But watch what they do. They confirm that Jesus' words are true. How do they do that? Jesus had told them this in John chapter 8, if you remember back with me, that they would die in their sin, in their rejection. Look at John chapter 8, verse 23. It says, but he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Watch what he says next, as if he already knew, because he did. It was according to the sovereign plan of God. Watch what he tells them. Emphatically, you will indeed die in your sins. And they did. Rejecting Christ and sending him to the cross as our sacrificial lamb of atonement. They died exactly how he said that they would. They did exactly what he said they would do. Isaiah 53. Isaiah again, speaking long before Christ, prophesies this in 52 verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He's referring to Christ. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire of him. Watch verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. His own men. His fellow Jews. 
He was despised and rejected by men. It had to be so. Had Christ not been rejected by the Jews, you Gentiles, you'd surely have no hope. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Centuries before Christ. Depicting exactly what would happen. Showing us that the sovereignty of God was displayed in the Jewish rejection. They rejected their Messiah. For the most part, they are still rejecting their Messiah today. And God's word prophesied that it would happen. Jesus himself told them, you will die in your sin. Why? Because Jesus knew it was the sovereign will of God decided in the realms of eternity past. Psalm 22 states the same thing. Another prophetic psalm, it says in verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by my people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Wasn't that what we see here in John chapter 19? We see that coming to fruition just as the prophets said that it would, confirming that Jesus' words were sovereign truth. He made it clear that as a whole, the Jews would be rejected so that Christ could be crucified. And that was evidenced in their rejection of Christ. He made it clear that these blasphemers would never be enlightened to believe and to be saved. God sovereignly accomplished His plan by turning them over to their unbelief. We see this in Romans chapter 1, three different occasions. It said God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. Speaking of those of reprobate minds. It is He who is sovereign even over the reprobate, even over the unbeliever. He sovereignly accomplished His plan through these Jewish haters who hated Christ so much that they were willing to align with Caesar as their king and to reject the king of glory. But isn't that what we all do in our human state? Reject the king? Reject the one who came to die for the sinner who would believe? Isn't that what we all do apart from a work of God? Let me answer the question for you. It is rhetorical. Yes, that is what we all do. And if God does not open a person's eyes to see the truth of Jesus Christ, if God does not do that work, they will remain in their sin and unbelief just as these Jews did. Now watch this. God is never going to issue an apology for that. Because a sovereign God need not apologize. I told you, he has plan A, and it is always a perfect and holy plan. And who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Isn't that what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 9? We are but clay, and he is the potter. He decides those he saves. He decides those who he turns over to their rejection and their unbelief. He is sovereign over all things. And I am thankful that he is, because in seeing that, in light of the sovereign crucifixion of Christ, we find hope as sinners. I'm so thankful. So thankful that he did not 
allow Pilate to change his mind. I'm thankful that he did not open the eyes of the Jews so that he would go to the cross in accordance with the plan of the Father to rescue the many that the Father had sovereignly given him to rescue. So what do we say about all this as we wrap it up? We're hopeless. We're helpless without the sovereign preordained plan of God. The suffering, the agony, and the death of Jesus was in perfect accordance with the Father's will. Oh, you can get mad at the Father if you want to about that. But without that, you have no redemption. Without that, all you have to look forward to is hell and the wrath of God for all eternity. You can get mad at God for being sovereign, but ask Job how that works out. It would be best if today you fell on your face and you said, thank you, Lord, that when I was in my sin and in my wickedness, you had a plan And that plan was to redeem sinners. Lord, thank you for opening my eyes to the fact that I am a sinner and I am in need of a Savior because I know it's you who opened my eyes because you could have kept them shut if you wanted to. I'm thankful that you opened my eyes so that I could see the truth. If you see the truth today, thank God for that. You did nothing. It is Him who's done it all. He's opened your eyes so that you can see. He's given you the faith to believe. He's given you the power to repent. Thank Him for that today. If you have not believed and repented of your sin, and He's showing you today your need to believe and repent of your sin, it is because He is the one who is drawing you unto Himself. Cry out to Jesus, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh boy, doesn't that take a different light when we look at the context of Scripture? The only one who's going to call out to Christ to be saved is the one he reveals himself to. The one he shows he is a sinner in need of a Savior. And then and only then will a person call out to Jesus. Oh, would he be merciful on your soul today? May you rest in God's almighty and sovereign plan. May you trust that a sovereign God knows best about everything. Whether we like it, whether we don't. May you who are here today under the sound of my voice who the Holy Spirit is working on drawing you out of darkness and into light. May you today forsake your life of sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is your only hope. If He has graced you today with seeing that truth, Respond in obedience and faith. Trust in Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is true. Lord, the parts we like and the parts that we don't like, the parts that we can understand clearly and the parts that are so big that we can't even understand them, thank you that they're all true. God, I thank you that the wicked men did wicked things to our Lord. It was only because you had a plan to redeem those who would believe. Thank you, Lord, for that plan. It is in that plan that any of us who have been saved have found salvation. We thank you so much for that. I pray for the soul of one who's here today who is in need of your grace and your mercy. 
May You lavish that grace and that mercy and love upon them today, bringing them out of darkness and into life, believing and trusting in Christ as their Lord and Savior. May Your will be done. And may you receive all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.